Welcome to Bloom, a podcast about anything and everything, featuring conversations with people who have led meaningful, interesting and flourishing lives in order to better understand ourselves, each other and the world around us. My name is Nick and today I'm lucky to be joined by Professor Gillian Triggs, who became best known to the Australian public through her service as President of the Australian Human Rights Commission between 2012 and 2017, which saw her involved in and influencing some of the major social, political and human rights issues of the day. Prior to this, while working as a public international lawyer and academic, Gillian enjoyed a diverse and distinguished career in the law, both in Australia and internationally, working with Melissa Stephen Jacks, serving as Dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Sydney, and as Director of the British Institute for International and Comparative Law. Gillian was recently appointed as Assistant High Commissioner for Protection at the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, a role based in Geneva, Switzerland. So, Gillian, thank you so much for being here today and congratulations on your recent appointment. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. So you published your memoir, Speaking Up, in October 2018, and it's a unique fusion of your personal story, your time as President of the Australian Human Rights Commission, and an analysis of major political and social issues. I found the opening chapter really instructive in framing some of your early influences, from being born not only in wartime London, but also in the wake of the bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, your parents both serving in the armed forces against Nazi Germany, and your early experiences as a migrant to Australia. I suppose in retrospect it seems inevitable that your career would have come to a revolt around public international law, human rights advocacy and diplomacy. Can you reflect on some of these broader influences and defining moments of your life so far? I think it's one of the um, interesting aspects of getting a little older that you can start to reflect back on the past and realise that things that perhaps you didn't see at the time as being particularly important have actually assumed an enormously important role in how your life takes its direction. And for me, obviously, growing up in London after the the Hiroshima-Nagasaki bombings, the end of the war, my parents being in the army and the the Navy, um, and living in in the poverty and destruction of London, the horrors of, of London, and growing up there for the first few years, and then coming suddenly, my parents decided that they were going into the light uh, to Australia and decided to become migrants and um, I was wrenched from being a professional ballet dancer to uh, leaving Australia when I was 12 but coming through the Suez Canal probably was one of the most um, eye-opening experiences of my life because I'd come from a very protected world in you know, Terrace House in North London, mm. my ballet, I was at a local convent, um, led a wonderful life. Suddenly I'm seeing that people my age in, in Yemen, where there's still civil war. There was civil war then in 1958. Uh, but a young girl my age was living in, in, um, in abject poverty, uh, discrimination, um, with virtually no future and no education. I, it opened my eyes to the realities of the world that I was living in. And um, so I, I think when I look back now, uh, from my seventh decade, I realised that those things really did inform... Uh, you know, my education and how I develop my life. Yeah. And can you speak a bit about why you named the book Speaking Up and in particular why you named the opening chapter Finding My Voice, perhaps mm. reflecting on the reference you made to Homer's The Odyssey in Chapter 2? Mm. Well, I uh, I think that um, women, and I observe that women have been passive, that they have to a high degree uh, been willing to stand behind men. They're not mm. inclined to be to speak and articulate their concerns, um, and very often they lack confidence in the public arena. And I found that when I was really quite young, I learned the power of the voice, 
and I learned how to give a speech and I learned how to engage an audience. Mm. And they're, they're skills that I think have helped me all my life. And most particularly when I was president of the Australian Human Rights Commission, I realised that uh, we uh, had the facts right, mm. the law was easy to get right. It was now my job, absolutely clearly under the statute, to speak up for those things that I knew were legally and morally right. Mm. And I had a voice that not only could I use but that other people listened to. And even if some of that meant that I attracted the ire of the Murdoch press and, yeah. and uh, News Corp and, of course, the Prime Ministers of the day and Attorney General, I really was so strong in knowing that what I was doing was, was right and legally correct and the facts were right that it gave me an opportunity really for the first time in my life to not only have a voice within the small world I operated in but to have a voice in a much bigger canvas in a much bigger world and I saw the power of using that voice and you bring a lot of people you can bring a lot of people with you and so when I came to writing this book about my five years as president of the commission I I thought well really the title what I was really trying to say is speak up for what you know is right now you may not agree with everything I'm saying I'm I'm quite sure most a lot of people don't but that's not the point. I'd just like people to speak up about what they know to be right and be part of the democratic system in the way in which it was always intended yeah. uh, rather than allowing far too many people to speak up for you. And there's a really interesting kind of um, flip to that whole notion of speaking up, which is, I suppose, not speaking up and what the costs are when you don't that's speak right. out against things which you perceive to be unjust or unfair. That's um, quite right. Yeah. And, and I, the people I, I try to speak to everybody, but the people that I find I'm particularly resonating with are, are people of my age. Mm. Uh, in other words, the, the World Economic Forum's Gender Index um, says Australian women and girls are number one in the world for education. My generation, from the, when I was at university in the 60s, we are probably the best educated group of women ever in the history, yeah. globally, but mm. certainly of Australia. And I think my generation should be speaking up, that we have everything that's required. We've got the education, we have a voice, we mm. have often relative comfortableness. Um, we're coming in the later stages of our lives. I think we have a responsibility to speak up on all sorts of issues. Yeah. Um, just by way of example, uh, my whole education at University High School, the University of Melbourne, at a university in the United States, at Cambridge in England, mm. and back to Melbourne, all of that was at the taxpayer's expense. Yeah. Um, a young girl now who does the JD degree uh, at the University of Melbourne will have a debt probably of $100,000. Yes. And it's extraordinary that my generation isn't marching in the streets to say, how is it that we have benefited so greatly from that, if you like, social experiment of the 60s mm. uh, from which I benefited so much? Why are we not standing up for these generations younger than us who have not got those opportunities? So that's the Absolutely. generation I'm most particularly speaking up to mm. because we have money, we have power, we have education, we should be doing that. Absolutely. And so I think one of the most powerful features and themes of um, your book is the way in which you do situate yourself as part of that generation of women who, as you describe, rode the crest of the wave mm. in terms of female empowerment mm-hmm. and liberation in That's the workforce, right. but also in society more broadly, mm-hmm. uh, underpinned by the expansion of opportunities for university education, mm-hmm. as you've mentioned 
but also the introduction of laws against sexual discrimination and intellectual movements typified by um, Simone de Beauvoir and, mm. and Germaine Greer as well. So your book's peppered with those wonderful nostalgic an- anecdotes mm. from your time at the University of Melbourne, such as drinking rosé at Jimmy Watson's wine bar, yes. which many would be familiar <laughs> with. Um, but what was your outlook on life and work like as a young woman in the 1960s? Well, it was, as you as you say, I use the phrase riding the crest of a sort of an optimistic mm opportunistic wave i mean we when we when i was at law school it never it it was never suggested that we wouldn't get a job Mm. of course we were finishing law degrees we were going to be powerful uh the world was ours absolutely ours uh new ideas of of equality before the law non-discrimination education for women uh we i couldn't have been in a more optimistic environment and um and we benefited from it it was a very exciting time also evolving understanding of the horrors of the vietnam war um that um that we ought not to be involved in in that losing lives and many young men that i was at university with doing law were selected into the into the draft uh of course the six-day war occurred in in israel and um Young men from my year at law school were leaving as Jews to go off to uh, Israel. Now, of course, yeah. the war didn't last very long, so they weren't there very long. But nonetheless, the that was the environment we were in yes. of young people with a different view about the future, being caught up in wars mm. uh, that they they may, maybe didn't support, but but felt they had to be part of. So you made recent remarks about how there's still a long way to go for women mm, well, in yes. today's generations to achieve full equality you know, of opportunity, mm. but also, as you mentioned before, just the, the complete shift, I suppose, in the opportunity that might have been afforded to your generation versus now and how there's a lot of you know evidence and reports which say that you know, the standard of living for this generation is, is going to be um, a retrograde um, step. Yes. So I suppose... Yeah, what, what do you see as the sort of critical areas for improvement in terms of gender equality? Well, that's that's been the extraordinary realisation, mm. that here we are in the second decade of the 21st century, and I'm now uh, giving speeches and being asked to talk about the regressive position of women. But mm. it's true generally. It's not only a gendered question, but as yeah. we've begun to talk about the opportunities that were seen for women in the 60s, why, you know, 55 years later... Are we observing such a retrograde environment? Mm. Um, So although I I mentioned the World Economic Forum's gender index, we're number one for education, um, we're 103rd for health access. Mm. Uh, We're 46th for economic engagement. Uh, Without going into that in too much detail, women now retire on on 46% of men's superannuation. We are accepting fractional, flexible, casualised contracts and we've simply declined. Um, instead of reaching our full potential in the workforce, we've not done it. Mm. And that's led to extraordinary statistics that um, uh, the fastest growing group of homelessness in Australia is women over 55. Mm. Um, and that is largely due to, um, uh, firstly, domestic violence, and secondly, um, poverty. And no one could really have imagined that in the 60s that's where we would be, mm. that my generation. Um, but, but speaking more broadly, a young girl these days does not have the expectations of the ability to meet her, her potential mm. and indeed to do as well financially yeah. as, as my generation. And I think we've got to look hard and long at this. But what are the immediate issues? Homelessness, domestic violence, poverty 
but also marginalisation in the workforce, that we should be we should be much more engaged than we are. We're something like 77th in the world for um, political engagement at senior yeah. levels. Uh, and that's not surprising when you look at our current political environment. Who could have possibly have imagined that? So we're a long way from achieving equality. And, and I think many of the things that I'm talking about apply to men as well in some cases. Yeah, course, yeah. It's not only a gendered issue. So I do want to be careful in saying that. I don't only see this as women. I think men have also suffered um, in various ways, uh, although overwhelmingly it's been, it's been women uh, mm. lead going into poverty. I see homeless men around here yeah. all the time. The, the, the women's issue in homelessness is very different. It's much more easily covered up. Mm. Uh, it's, the, it's the mother calling the son to say, can I sleep on your sofa, yeah. even though you've got three children and you're struggling, yes. uh, whereas men tend to be literally on the streets, right. um, and that's very painful to see. What would your advice be to young women um, about living happy, flourishing and meaningful life in the face of all these quite you know, sobering and even sort of depressing statistics and broad yes. societal trends? Well, I think um, uh, one is to be alert to what's happening to them. Mm. Um, I, I think it's been incredibly dangerous for women to be accepting these casualised, fractional positions. Yeah. They've been lulled into what I think is absolute nonsense, uh, the balance of life and, and quality of life issues. I think by accepting this, um, they've actually stepped off the, off the ladders. Mm. They've not they don't build the superannuation. They don't build the financial uh, um, background. My advice to them will be from a very, you know, once you're in that workforce, you build that workforce commitment and you stay in it. Mm. Um, my observation has been that women will take fractionalised positions but work in effect full-time yes, and get half the salary. Yeah. And they've done it for all sorts of personal reasons. But I, I would say, just as, as a first step, there mm. are so many things, to, but the first step is when you get that job, you mm. work on it full-time mm. and you, you develop your own um, security within the job market. Mm. But take opportunities. I think women tend to be to lack self-confidence, and I'm sorry to say that, but mm. they far too many do. And I think in that if we... In terms of salary negotiation or uh, and promotion. It, it, and, absolutely. Mm. And, and not, not speaking up. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, they're <laughs> so passive. Mm. They're so, they, they, there's a wonderful book, um, it's not that wonderful, but it's interesting, by, by um, called Leaning In. Yes, Sheryl Sandberg. By, by Sheryl Sandberg. That mm. women have not lent in. They've been so passive and willing to accept other people's view of them but you can be courteous. You can still be feminine and you can still be all those things. But but you've got to stand up for what you know you are. You know you're an educated woman uh, with, a, with a clear mind and, and you you can be ambitious and, and insist on, on your own position. But I'm afraid young women do not typically take that view. Mm. They're still nervous about what other... They care about what other people think of them. They want yeah. to be liked, whereas men are not as subject to that. Now, yeah. why that difference has arisen, I'm not entirely sure, but uh, my advice to young women is get the support of other young women and other young men mm. and stand up for it mm. and stand up for yourself and use your education, but don't accept this silly work-life balance nonsense. <laughs> Take your full-time job, which is actually 37 and a half hours a week, I understand, mm, that's right. and go for it. Yeah, that's wonderful. So just shifting into um, your time at the Human Rights Commission um, from 2012 to 2017, 
Something that really pervades throughout your book is the sense that Australia as a nation has lost touch with its more liberal internationalist roots and obligations, mm -hmm. perhaps best exemplified by Jesse Street yes. and um, Herbert Doc Evatt. Mm -hmm. So why do you think Australia is so uncomfortable with speaking the language of human rights, uh, exhibiting an extreme tetchiness to United Nations reports about violations yes. of international law? Or other human rights uh, standards within our own country. Well, uh, well, yeah, but isn't it curious yeah. that when we started to flex our muscles and spread our wings as a as a sovereign nation in our own right, moving from the sort of imperialist uh, world of, of Britain, and we we did so with such pride and such strength, mm. and um, we were larrikans and we and individualists, and we saw that and. When we had the Jesse Streets going across to negotiate the yeah. Covenant of the League and insisting on women's equality and H.V. Uh, Evert insisting on the power of the individual sovereign states and wanting equality provisions in the Charter of the United Nations and being president of the, mm. human rights, uh, the Declaration on Human Rights, that they set the groundwork for exactly what you've described. Uh, Australia really committed to internationalism, to fundamental human rights, and we were we punched well above our weight, mm. in, weight in negotiating the major treaties: genocide, refugees, torture, international covenant on civil and political rights, yeah. economic rights, the rights of the child, the rights of women, the racial discrimination convention. All of that scaffolding for the modern international law and international human rights law, we played a, a very significant role yes. in doing in in that. Quite beyond our. GDP or yep. where we where we stood economically in the yeah. world or militarily, um, what has happened to us? And I, I do try to understand this by reference to that extraordinary year two thousand and one yes. with the Tampa crisis, the children overboard lies mm. by the government, demonstrably lies, and um, and then ultimately the terrorism attacks on the United States. And I think that gave the Howard government the capacity to argue that everything could be justified in the name of national security. Yes. And he used that, uh, in my view, as an abuse of power to then massively expand executive power yes. at the cost of the individual citizen and to denigrate the role of the United Nations, of the treaties Australia had signed up to and been part of, and to then ignore them. Yeah. And I think the number is something like, uh, before the Human Rights Committee, for example, 44 or 45 uh, recommendations to the Australian government that have been simply ignored out of hand. I think one or two have been accepted for very particular domestic political reasons. But otherwise, uh, we have that uh, Abbott uh, statement, we will not be lectured to by the United Nations. So we've had a complete transformation for when we were right in there yeah. with the UN, forming it, drafting it, yeah. drafting the treaties to a Prime Minister like Mr Abbott who says well, you know, we won't be lectured to by the UN, we will ignore all of those commitments yeah. that we've made in the past. And that has led to a conflation of national security with anti-Islamic uh, um, feelings, rejection of, of refugee claims and a denigration of those who are vulnerable internationally. Mm. And the extraordinary discordance is that not only were we signatories to these treaties and international um, obligations and frameworks of multilateral institutions, um, we helped to form and shape them, perhaps Indeed. in the mould of what our Australian values were at the time. That's right. 
and for us to sort of um, you know turn our back in, on them and and and, um, and denigrate them now is I think a, a, an extraordinary reversal that calls out for much study. I'd say. I think so. Mm. I, I mean, it, it, over the years there will be research, proper yeah. research into how and why that transformation occurred. Mm. But you're right; it's much more than human rights. It yeah. was, it was the international financial system, the the World Trade Organization, yes. one of the most remarkable achievements of of modern democracy. Um, and uh, we're now finding these things are being overturned as we retreat into national populism and, and jingoism. Mm. One of the features I found most compelling in speaking up was the way in which you interweave your own personal encounters and stories with those you connected with during your time at the Human Rights Commission with broader treatises uh, and reflections on contemporary legal, political and human rights issues. Um, so thinking back across your five years at the Commission and the profound and diverse exposure to Australia uh, and humanity at large that that gave you, what are some personal stories or encounters that most moved you and shaped you as a person? Well, well when I first started to write this book, I was mm. very much you know, concerned with the, uh, with the legal and constitutional problems that Australia doesn't have a Charter of Rights, we yeah. haven't got the legislation that we need, our courts have become powerless for various reasons. Why has that happened? Because that impeded me in my ability to do my job at the Human Rights Commission. Yeah. So I be, that's why I started to write the book mm. and, of course, to pick up the theme of speaking up. But my, the the, um, the publisher, the wonderful Louise Adler from yes. Melbourne University Publishing, said, you know, this legal stuff is fine, Gillian, but, but we want the personal stories. Mm. People want to know what happened and how you felt. Yeah. And so I went back to the drawing boards and started to read, I'm putting in the personal anecdotes. But... But let me say that, that there were many, uh, of course, uh, that, that I remember. But I think in particular were my three visits to Christmas Island where mm. there were so many children that the government hadn't even counted them. Mm. Uh, I asked uh, Scott Morrison how many children had been born on Christmas Island and his answer was that he didn't have the bio data on that. I mean, it was a disgraceful answer. But uh, in particular, I met a 12-year-old girl who... Um, sort of hung around me for a while as I was moving across the island and the various compounds in which these people are trapped in the heat in concrete behind barbed wire. Mm. I mean, it was simply appalling. But there she was, this bright-eyed, obviously intelligent 12-year-old. And finally she got my attention and proceeded to tell me the story that she'd been on the island for more than 12 months. Mm. She'd come from South Sudan where her parents had been murdered and killed, her, her brothers and sisters killed. Um, but an aunt from Kenya who had a bit of money managed to get this little girl out into through people smuggling mm. and she came through the seas, terrified of sharks, terrified of the water, finally picked up by Australian Coast Guards, thank goodness, mm. um, and rescued effectively by Australians uh, in the best of tra traditions in maritime safety. Yeah. She was brought to Christmas Island and she was there for more than 12 months. And she told me her story about how she'd come, how her father had been put in a sack by, by rebels and left on a road to be run over by trucks. I mean, appalling stories, mm. uh, losing her entire family. Um, she was completely composed as she told me the story, um, remarkable in itself. But then she burst into tears when she said, I've been on Christmas Island for 12 months, yeah. more than 12 months, without any schooling or education at yeah. all. And... I realised then that she understood that if she couldn't get an education, mm. her future capacity to, to develop and develop her capacities, mm. her rise to her possible 
limits were, were being stymied at this incredible age of 12. She understood that deeply. Mm. And I found myself being, you know, in tears listening to a story. And one of the most important things that we recommended on that first visit to Christmas Island was if whatever else they do, they must provide education for these yes. children. And do you know the government refused to do so? Yeah. But what happened, and this is what, something I learned about Australia, was that the Catholic Education Commission in Western Australia, which of course is the closest to Christmas Island, ultimately agreed uh, that they would provide uh, some form of rudimentary education to these children. Yeah. Um, now, of course, within a, cu a couple of years of that, or 18 months of that, all the children were removed from Christmas Island and she w came to Australia. But I think that that single story... Yes. demonstrated to me the not only the refusal to comply with fundamental principles of human rights law to children, but the spitefulness and the maliciousness of the Australian government policy was beyond belief. And I could not believe that my own country would fall to those yes. depths. Um, and it has obvious echoes um, to your own migration story as well coming through. Yes, indeed. I was the same age as her. I was 12. Well, you, really? Okay. Well. I was exactly the same age. But isn't that extraordinary? Because mm. you think by the arbitrary nature mm. of citizenship or where you were coming mm. from, you had this sort of, you know... A Londoner. Yeah. Australian government wanted mm. British people with... My parents were business people. Um, you know, we were going to be good migrants and I think, I think we were good migrants. The happen chance of her life in South Sudan yes. in civil war gave her nothing, no hope. No. Now, ultimately, she did get that hope. Yeah. But but the the horror of those policies at that time yeah. was was, uh, was overwhelming. And you can imagine the possibility that unfolded in your life, and you're heading off to Geneva soon uh, to the United Nations. But to think that any possibilities for her total flourishing might be denied to her because of that mandatory detention laws is mandatory quite indefinite yeah, detention indefinite. laws completely contrary i can might use this opportunity to say not contrary to sort of what people might see as left-wing radical views of the general <laughs> assembly but that is in the middle of the Va the magna carta more than 800 years ago mm. no person may be detained arbitrarily without charge or trial by their peers yes. she never had the opportunity for anybody any court uh, any judicial process to determine her yeah. incarceration. And so it might be a nice segue to probably the most um, defining, well, one of the most defining moments of your time at the Commission, the publication of the Forgotten Children Report, yes. which mm. is a 300-page report mm. detailing the impact of mandatory indefinite detention on asylum-seeker children. So for our listeners, could you summarise sort of what the report found, why it was so groundbreaking, um, and perhaps what the impact of the report has been domestically and internationally since then? Well, uh, perhaps I could tell you the story that, that after the report was published, we, of course, sent it to the United Nations. And when I went to Geneva for a meeting, um, I was asked by the Human Rights, uh, the, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights yeah. to come and see him. He was a Jordanian prince in that diplomatic position and a, and a wonderful man, a philosopher and a mathematician, I understand, but very unusual to be invited to meet him because Australia is not usually at the front of his mind or the front front of the mind of the Human Rights um, um, Commission, for that mm. matter. Um, so normally they, they wouldn't sort of spend their time speaking to people like me. They'd be talking to Africa or, you know, China or, you know, other parts of the world where there were egregious breaches of human rights. So I was surprised to get it, but when I meant to see him, he was just glowing in his... In his um, 
uh, review of the human uh, of the Forgotten Children's Report. Mm. And as I left the 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 um, Palais Wilson uh, on the shores of Lake Geneva uh, on these sort of creaking old wooden chair, uh, stairs. I was fluffing myself up with pride for the work of the commission, thinking, well, we really did a good job with that mm. report. But then as I came down the stairs, I thought, how ridiculous. He was making the point that never in the history of the United Nations have they ever received a report that gave the medical and um, scientific data on the impact of indefinite uh, mandatory detention on 1,100 children. Mm. And I thought... <laughs> Of course they were pleased to get it because never seen anything like it. There's no parallel. There's no there was no parallel. There'd never been anything like it in the history of, of, uh, of the United Nations. They've mm. never, never had a report like that. Mm. So, so that really brought me back down to earth when I realised just the magnitude of this problem in Australia. Mm. But to go back to your original question, we, we um, embarked on this with 1,100 children in detention and there was no movement. The, the Abbott government was not moving his children at all. They'd been there for then more than a year and a half, mm. and he was showing no indication of moving them anywhere. So that's why we embarked on the report. Controversial though it was, because it, it was seen as politically biased, which was nonsense, mm. but, but we'll put that to one side. What I did was to bring medical officers with us, all pro bono, psychiatrists, paediatricians, general practitioners, uh, social workers, with us on each one of these and sometimes repeated visits mm. to the worst of the detention centres, Christmas Island and on the Australian mainland. I couldn't go to Nauru or Manus because the government wouldn't let us. Really? There were no children on Nauru. Uh, sorry, no, on Manus, no, but there were children on Nauru, but okay. the government wouldn't let me go. So I concentrated on what I could do. But the miracle of that report was that it was not only the legal standards, which, of course, we could do easily, but we, we did not have the skills within the commission to make judgments about the medical, medical records, uh, yeah. and and medical and mental condition of these children. But we concentrated on the children for obvious reasons because people were going to be moved by the condition of the children. They weren't going to be moved by the condition of the adults. I'm afraid that was a sort of an opportunistic, yeah. uh, very practical thing. But but the statistics then demonstrated that 34% at that time and worsening of those children had had severe, uh, medium to severe mental conditions. Mm. Now, that was just the start. But, of course, their physical condition, we took pictures of the sores in their bodies, the spina bifida conditions that were not being met. Mm. Um, but the, the critical one was really the, the, the long-term damage done to these children. And, of course, they've all now come back into the Australian community, some still in detention in Australia, uh, a small number, a handful, um, but most now in community detention or in the general community, where their parents can still not get visas. They're st the best they can get, and most have not got it yet, but the best they can get is um, a temporary protection visa. Mm. Uh, so they have no security. The parents are still in a state of great anxiety, and that passes through to the children mm. who are now presenting in their schools and in the medical facilities with long-term psychiatric uh, and other physical and, and mental conditions. So, I mean, the, the, the research was groundbreaking because yep. it's never been done before. But we've never had a group of that size that you could get a, a statistically relevant um, database. Mm. And those drawings you mentioned are probably... Mm things that probably mm. stick with you the most. Oh, they do. Yeah. I mean, you, when we first said to the children, well, you know, tell us about your life. And some would write wonderfully optimistic 
do drawings of the Australian flag. They uh, understood what the flag meant uh, and their vision of Australia with kangaroos and oranges yeah. growing on trees and, and sunshine. Mm. But overwhelmingly, it might be that that was one side of the picture. The other side of the picture was them with par bars yes. over them crying. Yeah. But perhaps the most powerful thing was that the children all put their boat numbers on the pictures. Really? Now, can you imagine in a kindergarten or a young primary school in Australia, children putting a number mm. They may have a number when they enrol at a school, I have no idea. But but they would always say Alice or Jane or Tom. Yeah. These children didn't do that. They'd been trained only to deal with a, with a number. And that's De part of the dehumanising yeah. that the Australian officials, but particularly the uh, Soko guards and mm. others, imposed on these children. Um, and they would stand up straight and give you their boat number as though they were in a yeah. Nazi concentration camp. Yeah. It was, it was sh totally shocking. And bit by bit we encouraged them to put their names down. Yeah. Um, but they always put the boat number. Just extraordinary. Mm. So you were recently appointed as the Assistant High Commissioner for Protection at the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, so the UNHCR, and was soon moved to Geneva, um, which is obviously there's an extraordinary connection between your work yes. at the Human Rights Commission mm. and here. So you mentioned that the appointment was a recent and rather unexpected development. Mm. Um, can you maybe tell us a bit about the background, about how you came to the role and, and what responsibilities it will entail? Well, I I had never imagined um, that we would be doing something like this. Um, I'd come back to Melbourne. I'd chair Justice Connect. I'm yeah. on the, you know, president of the Asian Development Bank Tribunal, about to move to another major international tribunal. I simply thought I'd lead a relatively quiet, uh, you know, yeah. life, um, getting back to some of my roots as an international lawyer. Um, I, my roots are our commercial law, international commercial law. I did a lot of offshore oil and gas stuff. I was not really a human rights lawyer. But I thought I was going to settle back into my older world, settle back into Melbourne, uh, seeing more of my family and friends and, um, you know, enjoying my, my life, not at the same frenetic pace mm. that I've had. But I was uh, phoned by a UNHCR official to say that I was, um, you know, strongly encouraged to allow my name to go forward for this position. I didn't know it was vacant and I wouldn't have applied for it in any event. Yeah. But given that they'd so strongly encouraged me, I said, all right, I'll put my CV in. But very often, as you all know, the, the, the appointment processes, both in Australia and internationally, they often use other people's names as camouflage for the person they really want to appoint. Right. You're just there to yeah. sort of make it look good. So <laughs> I wasn't really... I didn't imagine for a minute I'd ever get it. Also, the UN usually appoints from internal positions. Yes. So I was completely surprised to be offered the position through the Secretary-General. And but, but then I felt, well... In a way, just as we began this conversation, my, my life has really led to this point. Mm. Um, and Churchill quote about everything in your life has led to this exact moment or something. Well, it, well yeah. he talks about it working with, walking with destiny. I'm yeah. not quite sure I have the same <laughs> grand view, but, but there's no doubt at all that you do feel in the end that maybe some strings yeah. are being pulled up there, uh, that it all comes together. And, and I, I thought, well, this is a wonderful opportunity to work on something I really believe in. I'm still healthy and well, mm. um, my husband's coming with me, mm -hmm. which is nice. And um, so, what's the job? Well, I've, as a, somebody rather amusingly introduced me the other day, they said, you've managed to irritate one government. Now mm. you're going to go off and irritate 193 governments. Yeah, yeah. Um, I hope I don't irritate them. What, I, what the job is, is um, the role of protection is not operational. I will, of course, spend time in some refugee camps, but, but my job's not there to deliver services. My job is to insist on the legal standards of protection. 
But that means working with government officials mm. across the world. And uh, funnily enough, I'm advised by others that I've been dealing with in UNHCR that Australia is probably one of the most difficult countries to be operating really? in. Yeah. That um, in other parts of the world, there's a much more humane approach. One of the biggest challenges is not the kind of rhetoric we get in Australia. One of the biggest challenges is actually uh, asking governments to ensure safe passage so that displaced people and refugees can go back to their homes. Mm. Um, and many, many governments want to support that program. So I'm optimistic mm. about this, although certainly daunted by the huge numbers. They're unprecedented. We have The UN is estimating now nearly 72 million people in the world are displaced yeah. uh, within their own country or refugees. So you are coming into the role at a really critical time, mm. as you've just mm. mentioned, uh, with, in terms of the scale of the global refugee crisis. Mm. But also there are other kind of environmental factors or political factors around you with the resurgence of anti-immigration sentiments by President Donald Trump, uh, Brexit and its rebuke of the open borders model in Mm. the EU, and the migration crisis in the Mediterranean, Mm. um, whose Mm. figures far eclipse uh, those in Australia as well in terms of being upwards to nearly 200,000 people. But So could you maybe provide a bit of a a survey of... uh, the current crisis as it stands uh, and the diplomatic and political cha- challenges at the That's right. The climate. Well, look, it's an unprecedented challenge. Yeah. Um, the, uh, one that you didn't mention that I think is relevant particularly for our area is, um, uh, you know, now the, certainly a million Rohingya have yeah. moved from Myanmar to Bangladesh. So there they are on the border um, in Bangladesh in one of the poorest countries in the world. Mm. And yet the, the Bangladeshis have offered their hospitality. Mm trying to get clean water, education for the children, medical care, the, the NGOs, charitable groups are working there. But a, but a huge political problem mm. where they're stateless, so they have no right of return to any country yes. because they're not, they don't have statehood. And as we know, Australia is even adding to that problem with, with um, stripping uh, nationality and leaving people with the state, contrary to the statelessness convention, of course, mm. and, and Myanmar has been doing that or never granting nationality in the first place. So that's a huge problem. But then you've got countries, again, I think the f- poorest country in the world, Mali, hosting hundreds of thousands of bliss- displaced people and refugees um, as a safe sanctuary. Yeah. Uh, South Sudan, where civil war rages. The Yemen, where, where citizens are being starved to death. Um, these are huge problems, and that doesn't get us anywhere near the Middle East and... Um, no and Syria and, um, and the continuing problems of, um, yeah. of, of Palestinians uh, displaced. So th- th- there are huge global problems uh, which will possibly or probably will be exacerbated by the effects of, of uh, global climate change. Yeah, and I, sus- I suppose it's, it's um, powerful symbolically to have a representative in your position now from the Asia-Pacific yes, and perhaps yes. someone outside of the UN as well. And I think I, I I can't presume to know what motivated them to to give me the position, but but I think that having a voice from this part of the world is really yes. important. When you look at many of the UN organisations, UN specialised agencies, they are uh, dominated by Europeans, by Africans, mm. Latin Americans, mm. uh, but you don't see many from this part of the world. Yeah. And um, uh, one of the reasons I possibly uh, been offered the job is is that I did a report for the United Nations last December yeah. on abuse of office and harassment and bullying within a UN agency, uh, right. UNAIDS, and I I suspect they quite like a fairly direct Australian voice. <laughs> I don't know that, but yeah. I was just as with the children's report prepared to call us 
spade or shovel mm. um, and prepared to call things out when the, when the evidence is there to support yeah. it. And I think that when you look at a lot of UN uh, reports, the, the, the language is careful and elegant and, mm. and um, a little oblique, mm. whereas <laughs> I don't do that. Yeah. And I think maybe they think it's time for a bit of plain speaking. Yeah. And Australians, of course, have got a reputation for we that. Do, and I picked right. up that national yeah. characteristic, despite being originally English. So um, uh, when in doubt, I'll pretend to be English. But, and when necessary, I should yeah. be Australian, I think, is where it'll work. So coming back to that idea of speaking up and the cost of remaining silent, you're obviously doing so on a much bigger scale now at the United mm. Nations, mm. this idea of going mm. from Australia and a lot of issues uh, <laughs> in our country to, uh, I suppose, mm. a, a global stage, you can sort of, this sort of funny image of all the parliamentarians who might have breathed a sigh of relief thinking, you know, you've she's gone gone. off the public stage in Australia, you've got a bigger microphone <laughs> now right. at the United Nations. That's right. But um, how do you kind of see um, your role and responsibilities to, to speak up for some of these global migration issues now? I mean, yeah. it's essentially what you were doing in Australia yeah. at a much, much bigger scale. I don't quite know the answer to that question yet yeah. because, as you say, it would be wonderful to have that, global microphone and be mm. able to speak up for these things. But at the same time, in four weeks, I will morph from being a British and Australian national mm. to an international public servant. Yes. So my job really will be to support the Secretary General and the High Commissioner. And I won't be quite the autonomous person that I've been for almost all my professional life. So I will have to be a little more careful because my job is to help them speak out I, uh, I can't in a way promote myself I, that that's it's not about me mm -hmm. so I I will have to be careful yeah uh, but I guess I will be clear in mm. doing what is within my portfolio mm. and so I I hope uh, that I will have an opportunity to speak up and clearly yes. do so but at the same time I can't take the risks that I took in Australia mm. in speaking as frankly as I did in the media. But also, of course, I was countering the appalling News Corp <laughs> misinformation. Yeah. So I was really sort of, mm. you know, I had the jet fuel of anger behind me. I can't, I can't allow that to influence the way I work in the United Nations. I will have to be much more careful. Yeah. Well, I hope we can read a memoir from your time at the United Nations <laughs> once all the... The final question, um, wrapping up the interview, um, would be what will you miss most about Melbourne and Australia? Oh, well, I, you know, I do love Melbourne. Mm. Um, I, I love the um, relative um, openness of Australian society. We're pretty decent people, I think. Uh, we're led by appalling governments, in mm. my view. Um I think the governments have let us down. But, but to go back to the more positive aspect of your question, um, you know, I do love being with Australians um, much more than anybody else. I think we are, we're, we're, we're pretty decent people. We basically act in good faith. And we basically are diverse, multicultural, and we respect each other mm. for the most part. Um, so I'll miss that. Yeah. I'll miss the number one tram mm. in Melbourne. I'll miss the National Gallery. It's a very sweet corner of the planet here. I it's a say, sweet, with a sweet part with beach, the beach down the road. Ice and cream stall. <laughs> the ice cream, Jock's ice cream opposite. Um, yeah. a, a beautiful community here mm. in Albert Park. Um, but, and I'll miss the, I will miss the cultural life. Mm. Uh, but I, I miss the city. I'm a city person. I love the city. Yeah. And I love being able to walk through the parks and eat well. Um, but also in a, in a pretty egalitarian city um, that tries to be doesn't always succeed 
but it, it is a it is a country and and a, and a city that aspires to egalitarian diversity, mm. and we struggle to get there. But I but I I think for most Australians that what we want that's what we aspire to. So I will miss that, mm. and I think Switzerland um, is a very different place. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I love the cold, so that's not a problem. But yeah. I, I will miss the, um, the open freedom, the relaxation of Australians and the fact that we basically like each other and act in good faith. Mm. Brilliant. Professor Gillian Triggs, thank you so much for your time today. It's a real pleasure talking to you, Nick. Thank you very much. Thank you.